KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power is presenting Indian fusion band Red Bharat, mixing Indian bhangra rhythms, hip-hop, and funk music, March 23rd at the Epstein Family Amphitheater. Tickets and information about upcoming concerts and events at artpower.ucsd.edu. A San Diego nursing home worker pleads guilty to sexual assault. These women were failed in a hugely tragic way. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. A new roadmap of recommendations to get California to carbon neutrality. It sets a tone for these very ambitious goals that California is trying to pursue. Experts warn of a major COVID-19 surge this fall. And a new hybrid opera, delayed since the pandemic, opens in San Diego. That's ahead on Midday Edition. An ex-caregiver and convicted sex offender pleaded guilty Tuesday to sexually assaulting two women in San Diego area nursing homes. Former caregiver Matthew Flukiger's plea comes before a planned retrial on charges he attacked the women while they were in his care. KPBS investigative reporter Amitha Sharma broke this story back in 2020. Her reporting directly led to the district attorney's investigation, which resulted in Flukiger being charged and prosecuted. She joins me now with more on the plea deal. Amitha, welcome back. It's good to be here with you, Jade. So Matthew Flukiger was set to be retried. Remind us of what he'd been accused of and why he was facing a new trial. Well, that's right, Jade. A retrial date for Matthew Flickiger had been set for June 21st, and he was facing the new trial on charges that he, as a caretaker, had committed a lewd act on an adult dependent on his care. And even though jurors found him guilty of sexually assaulting a woman at Parkway Hills Nursing Home in La Mesa back in March, the jury deadlocked on whether he sexually assaulted two other women. One was at Avocado Post Acute, and the second one was at San Diego Post Acute, and both of those nursing homes are in El Cajon. And what did he admit to doing as part of his plea agreement? Just that. He admitted to sexually assaulting the two women in his care at Avocado Post Acute and another one at San Diego Post Acute. And what can you tell us about why Flukiger took a plea rather than face a new trial? I don't know for sure, but I think the risk to him of being found guilty was really high. While the jury deadlocked on the two cases at Avocado and San Diego Post Acute, the deadlock was 11 to 1 with one single juror disagreeing that Flukiger was guilty. So I think that indicates that a second prosecution of him had a very, very strong chance of succeeding. How significant is this plea deal and Flukiger's admission in this case? Well, Jade, from a layperson's perspective, not a legal perspective, it's one thing for 12 strangers to find a defendant guilty. It's quite another for a defendant himself to say, yeah, 
I did it. In some ways, it's more powerful and more satisfying, especially when you had multiple instances in the case of the avocado victim where she simply was not believed by the nursing home staff and state investigators. Have you spoken to any of Flukiger's victims? And if so, what's been their response to the plea? I have not spoken to the victims, but I have talked to one of the lawyers for one of the victims, and he said that he hopes Flukiger's guilty plea gives the victims a chance at closure. You know, this case really revealed that the local nursing homes involved were falling short on their responsibility to care for residents and make sure they were safe. What did you find? Yes, I would go a little bit further. I think that this is an indictment of the nursing home industry, and this is an indictment of state regulators at the California Department of Public Health, whose job it is to protect these women. And let me just elaborate on that a little bit. There is documentation of sexual misconduct on the part of Matthew Flukiger in nursing homes dating all the way back to 2017, a full two years before he was accused of assaulting the first victim in the recent criminal case at Avocado. So after the sexual misconduct in 2017, CDPH, state regulators, never revoked his license. He was allowed to continue to work in nursing homes as a certified nursing assistant. And even after the avocado victim came forward in June of 2019, Flukiger was still allowed to work in nursing homes while CDPH was investigating him. So he got another job just weeks later at San Diego Post Acute and he sexually assaulted a second woman. And then four months later, he rapes a woman twice at Parkway Hills Nursing Home. CDPH knew of these allegations and they never took away his license. And that enabled him to work around physically frail women, mentally frail women, and assault them again and again. So as I said, you know, the guilty verdict and the guilty plea are not just an indictment of Matthew Flukiger. They are an indictment of the California Department of Public Health. And I say that because people, especially disabled people who live in long-term care facilities, who live in nursing homes, are extraordinarily dependent on the people around them and on the California Department of Public Health to safeguard them, to ensure their safety. These women were failed in a hugely tragic way. You know, sexual assaults are horrific enough. But when you add to the fact that they could have been prevented if the system made up of people had done their jobs, it makes these assaults even more horrifying. You know, as I said, the first victim at Avocado told multiple employees after Flukiger assaulted her, and the nursing home did not notify police until eight days later. This, even though they were mandated by the law to report the alleged sexual assault immediately to authorities. That includes police. So you have to ask the question, you know, if these women had been younger or heaven forbid, had they been children, would the system have responded the same way? And that leads you to the question of what's the value 
that is placed on the lives of these elderly women, on elderly people in general. You know, I mean, have there been any changes to nursing home oversight since you reported this story? No, not at all. Not on the macro level, and by that I mean statewide, new laws, new policies, and not at the micro level. You know, sexual assaults continue to be reported and substantiated at local nursing homes. That is horrific. Uh, You know, back to Matthew Flukiger. What sentence does he face for the crimes he committed? He faces 25 years to life, and his sentencing is scheduled for June 8th. And I expect that uh, either the victims or the victims' loved ones will will speak on that day before the judge and before Matthew Flukiger. I've been speaking to KPBS investigative reporter Amitha Sharma. Amitha, thank you for your work on this story. Thank you, Jade. State officials say it's a carbon-neutral model for economies around the world. The California Air Resources Board has just released an updated roadmap on how the state can achieve carbon neutrality by the year 2045. It would require an overall massive shift away from fossil fuels in transportation and industry, including mandating that new homes built just four years from now have all electric appliances and heating. And this roadmap has a greater emphasis than before on using using carbon capture technology to reduce greenhouse gases. The board's document is open to public comment, and so far the ambitious plan has received criticism from both the fossil fuel industry and climate change activists. Joining me is Kathleen Ronan, a reporter for the Associated Press covering climate change and the environment from California. Kathleen, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Now, the goal is carbon neutrality by 2045. That doesn't mean zero greenhouse gas emissions. So what does it mean? So carbon neutrality essentially means when you take as much carbon out of the atmosphere as that which you're putting in. And so the idea is, if you look at this scoping plan from California officials, they're saying that even with these drastic cuts that they're calling for in our use of fossil fuels, there's still going to be some emissions. For example, they're not mandating or they're not suggesting mandating that everyone get rid of their gas-powered cars. So by 2045, you could have people that are still driving gas-powered cars around. Um, The state's plan also considers a continued use of um, oil refining for Um, in the state. And so that is going to come with emissions. And so the idea of carbon neutrality is you end up taking those emissions out of the air through either carbon dioxide removal, through carbon capture and storage technologies, um, so that you come out at a place where your carbon emissions are net zero. Give us a sense of how California's homes and transportation would be different if these recommendations are adopted. Right. So one of the things that they are suggesting here, and I want to be clear that it's not yet a mandate, it's a suggestion, and there would be several steps before this um, was put into place, is that starting in 2026, any new homes that are built in California would have to have all electric appliances. That means that you would have an electric, not a gas-powered stove. That means you would have an electric instead of a gas-powered heater. They would do the same for commercial buildings and businesses starting in 2029. And for those of us that live um, in older homes or apartments, they would try to ramp up the sale 
bill of electric appliances so that if a homeowner has to, you know, replace their stove, they're more likely to buy an electric appliance versus a gas powered one. So that's on the residential side. As far as the transportation sector goes, California is already on a path as directed by the governor to end the sale of gas-powered cars in the state by 2035. So if you want to buy a new car, you would be buying electric, you would be buying a plug-in hybrid. And they want to expand that to not just passenger cars, but to trucks, whether that is passenger trucks or heavy-duty trucks that, you know, transport goods from ports or, you know, transport, uh, you know, food around um, on the highways. They also want to vastly ramp up um, the state's hydrogen infrastructure so that airplanes, you know, which are difficult to electrify, could start relying on some hydrogen fuel cells for their power. So it really, um, you know, explores a vast array of different options to wean the state off fossil fuels. But, you know, for everyday Californians, it's going to mean a difference in how, you know, our homes and our cars are powered. And carbon capture, the process of removing carbon emissions from the air, is a bigger part of this climate action roadmap than before. How much does it rely on that technology? Right. So um, previously, you know, I'll say the state only came up with its carbon neutrality goal in 2018. And that was something that Governor Jerry Brown set in an executive order. So the last time we did a big plan like this, we weren't talking about carbon neutrality. And so when you start to talk about that idea, um, you know, the state is saying you need ways to take that carbon out of the air. This plan that the state is pushing would diminish fossil fuel use or oil use, petroleum use, 91% by 2045. And so everything else, you know, the rest of, I guess, those 9% of, you know, emissions compared to today that we're still putting out there, all of that would need to be either removed or, you know, sequestered um, and put somewhere else, likely, you know, stored underground. And for the first time, the state's Air Resources Board is quantifying the role of forests and marshlands and other parts of the natural landscape that pull carbon from the atmosphere. And they're factoring that in as part of its overall climate action plan. What can you tell us about this? That's right. So what the state is saying at this point is that they hope that in the future we can rely less on technology to capture carbon and more on our natural lands to bring that carbon in. But it's going to take some time for us to get there. So under this plan that the state um, is pushing, they're saying, you know, in the immediate term, we're not really going to be relying on or be able to rely on our forests, our, you know, marshlands, et cetera, to um, capture a significant amount of carbon. But we hope to sort of um, create more scenarios in which they can serve that purpose. Um, So in the future, we have a more, you know, natural approach to removing carbon. This document released this week is a draft. So what has to happen before any of these recommendations become reality for California? A public comment period is opening. So anyone has the ability to read through this draft. It's more than 200 pages. It's pretty dense, but you can go to the Air Board's website. You can check it out and you can participate in the public comment process. And then it's going to ultimately go to the Air Board. So this was something that was put together by the staff of the California Air Resources Board. The board itself is you know, a body made up of political appointees. And I believe it's at their June meeting, they will start discussing this and they will ultimately decide if they want to see tweaks and changes to this. So we're sort of a long ways away from any of this becoming, you know, actual 
actionable, but state officials are saying that what it really does is it sets a tone for these very ambitious goals that California is trying to pursue. And, you know, California has the some of the nation's most ambitious carbon neutrality targets. And as we know, California's economy is massive. So anything that California sort of signals on the way it's moving on climate change really does have the potential to affect the way, you know, industry and other states respond. I've been speaking with Associated Press reporter Kathleen Ronan. Kathleen, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Kavanaugh. COVID-19 cases seem to be on the rise again, both across the United States and here in San Diego. In response to the nationwide uptick, the Biden administration is pushing for a new round of congressional funding to prepare for an upcoming wave of the virus that they say could infect 100 million Americans by fall. The startling prediction comes just as the United States has officially surpassed 1 million COVID deaths since the start of the pandemic. And while new deaths from the virus remain low, health officials warn that case numbers could continue to rise as the Omicron subvariants are continuing to fuel an increase in cases across the country. And joining me once again with a COVID update is Dr. Eric Topol, director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute in La Jolla. Dr. Topol, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Jade. Always good to be with you. Okay, so first, what do you make of this prediction from the Biden administration? Well, it sounds pretty grim that we could face 100 million more people getting an infection. But when you think that we had about 200 million had an infection in the span of 10 weeks with Omicron, it isn't far-fetched. It's basically indexed to a whole new variant beyond what we're seeing currently. And the possibilities for that are numerous. Yeah, and we know the subvariants seem to become more and more infectious. Do you have any sense of how these variants impact the body versus the initial strain? Yeah, I kind of conceived it as this ladder of increasing infectiousness. So, you know, when you went from alpha to delta to omicron, then we went to BA2, and now we have the emergence of this subvariant, as you call it, BA2.12.1. I wish there was a name for it, but that's what we have is the key subvariant, which is 43% in the United States as of today. It's only a 20 odd percent here in San Diego and in California, but it's on the rise. It will become highly dominant and it is even more infectious than what we've seen before. So this is not causing more deaths or hospitalizations per se, but because it's so infectious, the people who haven't been boosted, the people who haven't been vaccinated, they're still highly vulnerable. That's why we have to have our guard up. And uh, we're not through with this pandemic by any means because of this current wave of the subvariant. What do people need to be doing to avoid infection at this stage of the pandemic? The last thing we need is the attitude that it's over and that we're immune from getting COVID when we're not. So if you haven't had a booster, you better get one. It's really important. And if you've already had the third shot, but you're over 50 years old and you're at least four months past that third shot, think about getting a fourth shot now because in the next couple of weeks, we're going to see a substantial increase in the cases from where we stand right now. Beyond that, you know, the use of masks is still important, particularly N95s or KN95s. I just 
took a trip this past week and I wore a, a KN95 throughout the trip, multiple hours on a plane. And I was one of the rare people that wore one. And that's really a shame that we've had this letdown of the things that help prevent a hyper transmissible version of the virus. We just can't have this fatalistic approach that we're going to get infected because there's an unpredictable feature. You could get long COVID. And if your immune system doesn't kick in well enough, you could get pretty darn sick. So this is not the time to uh, think that we're in such great shape and that we don't face more trouble from COVID as we go forward. And let me ask you this, is there debate over whether or not we're still in a pandemic? Well, the terms are kind of silly because if you have a significant rise in cases, which we're seeing right now throughout the United States, I mean, we have places like Puerto Rico that are as high as ever. Uh, and, and in the Northeast, uh, New England, we're also seeing a major increase. This wave is going substantially up. Uh, we had 100,000 plus cases several days in the past week. That's not endemic. Endemic would mean that we've got containment of the virus with occasional you know, small outbreaks that are regional. We're nothing like that. We have a whole country going through a significant wave right now. And the prospect for potentially even worse one, as you mentioned at the top of this conversation. How are cases in San Diego faring now that we are three weeks past the end of mandatory mask mandates? I mean, are we seeing the increase uh, that many anticipated with eased restrictions? Well, actually, we're doing pretty well at the moment. So we get lulled into this complacency, right? The problem is we had BA2, which turns out the, the variant that before that, the Omicron original BA1 that started right at the end of November and really kicked in in December, mostly in January here, there was cross immunity. So with BA2, the people who had the recent Omicron BA1, they were basically holding up well. The problem is this new one, this subvariant, people don't have cross immunity with BA1. So we are going to see more and more cases and people getting sick, not just having a positive test in the weeks ahead because of the lack of this cross immunity, even though it's in the Omicron family of variants. Does this mean we'll have to fine tune vaccines or come out with a new one altogether? Well, that's another question because the vaccine that's in the works right now is this Omicron BA1 vaccine. But because we've already are now seeing this new variant, which doesn't cross react well with BA1, by the time that that booster Omicron vaccine comes becomes available, if it does in July, we're in the midst of a variant that has a, a minimal overlap for our immune system. It just is evolving much faster, this virus, and it's causing trouble for keeping up with it with the vaccine when we're trying to make it highly specific to a variant which is changing. So uh, that's why we need better medications. We need nasal vaccines and we need a pan beta coronavirus vaccine that doesn't have this vaccine specific reliance. And one for children, right? And one for children. You know, perhaps the vast majority of children have now had an Omicron infection or something before that. But as mentioned, that's not enough because Omicron alone in children is a very narrow they haven't been vaccinated, it's very narrow immunity that's rendered by it. So yes, a vaccine that was a pan cervical virus vaccine for everybody would be what we want. Uh, and we don't have it. We don't even have prospects for it yet. And we have basically a national pullback from funding for the things that we need right now. This is not the time for us to let down. 
And of course, long COVID remains one of the big issues, particularly as data, treatment, and general understanding of these prolonged symptoms is still developing. What's the latest on what we know about long COVID? Unfortunately, not a whole lot more than we've known for some time. That is, you know, the constellation of symptoms with the prominence of not just fatigue, but also breathlessness, exercise intolerance, and many other symptoms that are far in excess of healthy controls or people that tested negative for COVID in multiple series. One was just 120,000 people. So we know a lot about the symptoms and their duration and the fact that it can cause severe disability. But what we don't know is how to treat it. And some people, their main symptoms are their heart rate just jumps up so quickly and pronounced uh, with minimal exertion, whereas other people, it seems to be much more immune-mediated, potentially autoimmune or potentially the virus remnants or virus reservoir is still causing uh, as, a tr- as a trigger for those people. So we have no treatments yet. We don't really understand this mosaic of symptoms, like who has what component of it. We have a lot of work to do. And the billion-dollar grant that was given to the NIH to study this is not going into high gear yet. We need to really push on that and get the answers and the treatments. How do our current vaccines impact long COVID? Well, the good news there is that you've been, if you've been vaccinated, all the studies converge on at least a 50% reduction of experiencing long COVID and maybe substantially more than that. So that's yet another reason to get vaccinated and stay boosted. I've been speaking with Dr. Eric Topol, director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute in La Jolla. As always, Dr. Topol, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Jane. Baja California's first legal abortion clinics opened in March. Providers hope this is the start of safe and legal access to abortions on the Mexican side of the border. KPBS border reporter Gustavo Solis says the clinics are already attracting patients from the United States and will likely attract more with Roe versus Wade hanging in the balance. Tijuana is an established medical tourism destination. Americans can get root canals, plastic surgery, even liposuction at a fraction of the prices they pay back home. Now that abortion is legal in Baja California, a medical company called Profem is trying to add abortion to the list, even as reproductive rights face an existential threat in the U.S. with the Supreme Court poised to overturn Roe v. Wade. Luisa Garcia is the director of Profem. She says Tijuana has the potential to become the go-to destination for Americans seeking legal, convenient, and low-cost abortions in Mexico. Yo creo que Tijuana próximamente se puede hacer como que la capital o algo de la interrupción para todas las personas que quiera que quieran venir de otros estados o que lo quieran manejar más discretamente. In October 2021, Baja California legalized abortions up to 12 weeks of pregnancy and longer in cases of rapes or when a woman's life is in danger. Profem has operated a legal abortion clinic in Mexico City for 15 years. They opened a new Tijuana clinic March 17th. The procedure starts at $200, and there's no waiting period. Garcia says they're already serving patients from border cities in California and Arizona. However, there are several challenges to expanding abortion access in Baja California. Garcia says lack of education is still one of the top issues. Patients often ask if they're breaking the law by having an abortion, 
or if the procedure will prevent them from being able to get pregnant in the future. Another obstacle has been finding a landlord in Tijuana willing to rent to them. Garcia says Profem was denied a lease because the landlord didn't want to be associated with abortion providers. Empezamos a ver primero en un lugar y al momento de yo estar solicitando información para hacer la, la apertura, este, en una torre médica me dicen no, porque es para interrupción. Dr. Arturo Posada works at the new Tijuana Clinic. He asked me not to take photos of the building or even the waiting room. He doesn't want anyone to harass patients who come in for treatment the way some pro-life groups do in the U.S. The clinic in Tijuana is in an office building with dozens of other medical tenants. There are several buildings in Tijuana like this, many catered to the already established medical tourism industry. Posada believes women have the freedom and right to decide what to do with their pregnancies, but he recognizes that throughout history, they've been largely denied those rights, not just in Mexico, but all over the world. Posada says the two clinics in Tijuana and Mexicali have served about 100 patients since opening. The vast majority are from Mexico. But Posada's noticed a steady increase in women from the U.S. crossing the border to seek his services. He says the numbers are small, but growing each month. The first month it was only one, then three. In April there were five, even one woman from as far away as Texas. And all of this is through word of mouth. The clinic doesn't advertise in the U.S. Arizona and Texas are two border states where abortion will likely be banned if the Supreme Court does overturn Roe v. Wade. Posada suspects if that happens, his numbers will keep going up. Gustavo Solis, KPBS News. Is going solar still a good deal for California homeowners? We're all going to have to wait a little while longer for that answer. State regulators announced this week they need more time and more information before issuing new net energy metering rules. Those rules will regulate, among other things, how much homeowners will receive for the excess energy they sell back to the grid. A new net energy metering package being considered last year sent the industry into a panic, and state regulators delayed their vote. Now they want more information on three key factors. And joining me is KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson. Eric, welcome to the program. My pleasure. How unusual is it for the California Public Utilities Commission to ask for more information at this point in the process? Yeah, it's pretty unusual. I don't recall it ever happening uh, before where the California Public Utilities Commission has researched an issue, presented a proposed solution, and then had that proposed solution essentially be shut down before the panel is ready to vote. Now, if you think back a few years to when the first iteration of net energy metering, that's the system that people with solar get paid for the excess electricity they produce. You think back to 2002, when there was a transition from net energy metering one to net energy metering two, what happened then was there was the review, there was a proposed decision uh, put out a month later at a CPUC meeting Another commissioner presented a separate proposal that had different elements, and that first proposal was defeated by vote, and the second proposal was adopted. And that's kind of where we are now, living under the rules of net energy metering, too. 
This is really different because the CPUC issued their proposed ruling. It was not very well received at all by people who are solar power advocates and clean air advocates. They pressed the governor for some answers about it. And this all happened at kind of this weird backdrop. The commissioner who was pushing forward the proposed decision actually unexpectedly resigned a few days after releasing the position. So her job was vacant and another commissioner stepped down and that job was vacant. And and so there was some flux in the commission at the time. All comes down to the point where late in January, the new commission president, uh, Alice Reynolds, said, look, we just need to take some more time. This is a complicated issue. We're just going to stand down, do some more research. Um, and then this week, uh, they decided to you know, even take it a step further, which is open the record for more input. They want to know more about uh, some potential options to consider. Uh, and so they've reopened the record and they're asking for comment from interested parties. Let's go back a bit and talk about the new rules that they were going to present before they delayed their decision. How would those rules have changed the game on residential solar? It did a couple of things. What they were asking for, uh, and this is something that utility back groups have, have also pushed for, is a reduction in the amount of money that utilities would pay for excess electricity on electricity generated by rooftop solar panels. So they wanted to basically cut the value of that by about 80%. They also wanted to do a couple of other things, something that solar opponents have called a solar tax. They basically wanted to charge a monthly grid access fee where depending on the size of the system, you would pay a certain amount of money every month just to connect to the grid. And then any additional electricity you would use, you would pay for as well. Those fees came out to be, you know, for the average customer, right around $60, $70 a month, every single month on a recurring basis until whenever. As I said, the solar industry called this a solar tax, and, and they thought it would really be bad for the solar industry because it would basically remove two big financial incentives there uh, for customers to spend the thousands of dollars they would need to spend to put solar panels on their roofs. Can you tell us what kind of information the California Public Utilities Commission wants now before it decides on new residential solar rules? Yeah, they asked for three things specifically. One of the things that they asked for was this glide path approach. Uh, instead of shocking the system and saying, we're going to cut the value of electricity you produce, the extra electricity from level A, which you're currently getting to level B, which is 80% less. They want some information on a glide path, something that kind of gradually lowers that rate to get to the point where they want to be. So that's something that they want additional information on. They also uh, want to look at these non-bypassable charges uh, on gross consumption is what they call it. And basically that's uh, I think, a look at the fixed fees that utilities could charge uh, solar customers. And then they wanted some more information on community projects for solar and how those might work and how that might be a tool to get solar access to low-income customers in, in disadvantaged neighborhoods. And they're asking for comments on those particular items. And hopefully, by the end of June, they'll get all the comments they want. And then they could be could be in a position to make a decision as early as July. No guarantee there, though. You know, at the heart of this issue, can you explain what competing interests these state regulators are trying to balance? 
Yeah, there are a couple of things that they have to consider as they make this decision. One of the obvious things is is that utilities need to remain profitable. The state's investor-owned utilities, uh, because if they hand down a decision that the utilities uh, find untenable, it's going to hamstring their ability to maintain the grid for everyone. So the utilities' profitability has to be part of the equation. They also want to continue to encourage uh, the distribution and and the installation of new solar projects because uh, it's a power source that is completely green. Uh, It doesn't generate um, emissions and carbon that will uh, make it harder for the state to reach its clean energy goals. Okay, I've been speaking with KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson. And Eric, thank you so much. My pleasure. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Heineman. San Diego Opera had the aging magician on its schedule in March of 2020 as part of its detour series, but had to cancel the production because of COVID-19. Now it presents the West Coast premiere of this hybrid opera theater piece that combines singing, choral work, puppetry, and performance art. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando speaks with director Julian Crouch about staging this unique theatrical experience. Julian, Aging Magician was an opera that was going to be performed before the pandemic. So this feels like it was a long time coming. So how does it feel to finally be getting to stage it? It's very strange. It feels like it's really bookending these extraordinary two years because literally, yeah, we literally half the team was, had already flown to San Diego at the beginning of COVID. It happened right, right at that week. Yeah, and it's great to do it again. I mean, it, it, it's tricky because, you know, the Brooklyn Youth Chorus is, is involved. And, you know, two years is a long time for the Brooklyn Youth Chorus. I mean, I don't think the people who were doing it last time have got married, had kids yet. But, they, you know, there's certainly been a turnover. So you're already you know you're doing it again but you know with new kids and but you know it's a delight to be able to finally bring it here and for anybody who might be expecting traditional opera from san diego opera on this this is not (laughs) going to be it so explain what this experience is going to be like it's you know it's part opera part theater part concert part spectacle to me it feels very much like its own thing It's hard to put it in a particular genre. I can say it's really great. I really love it, actually. And I love it each time we do it and each time we revisit, I love it a little bit more because it's the kind of piece that is constantly revealing itself, you know, each time in each iteration. We always change some things. Each time we do it, we discover a little bit more. The music's beautiful. Uh, The writing's great. There's really one performer mostly speaking to the audience. Then there's a fantastic choir because they're really great and there's a quartet. So it's very hard, it's hard to talk about because it's very difficult to draw 
like a comparison, you know, with something else, which is great. It's nice to work on something so fresh. Well, explain to people what the storyline is. There's a man, Harold. He's a clockmaker, but he's very easily distracted. And the feeling is, is that he's approaching, he's approaching his own end of life. But at the same time, what he does to distract himself from his clockmaking is he's writing a story. And within, within the story, he says, oh, maybe it's a graphic novel. He's not quite sure what it is, but he's writing this story about a magician passing on his secrets to the next generation. But he's sort of got a chorus that is a little bit like his inner voice or a little bit like spirit guides. And sometimes they're a little hard on them and sometimes they're sweet and supportive. I can promise you it's beautiful and not at all boring. <laughs> it's the main thing to hit with opera is make sure it's not boring. <laughs> and as a director, what are the challenges of doing an opera that's a multimedia one? Because you're using a lot of different elements, including shadow puppets, I believe. I, I'm comfortable with that because I've never really settled on one thing myself. So, you know, I've worked for many years as a as a designer, but I've also directed and I, I had to also work with music myself, I write music. So it's a project that existed before me, but in some ways it's the perfect fit for me because I have experience in these different areas. And so the challenge is, is with something that has like the Brooklyn Youth Chorus, which is a lot of people, is, is really just finding the money to develop it and the rehearsal space. And the, it was something that was put together on a shoestring in a way. It was sort of like a whirlwind, the creative period, which I would say was a challenge, but also something really fantastic about it. There's something very fresh about it as well. So that's my role, I feel, is to try and keep it alive, especially, you know, especially something you're remounting is to is how do you rediscover it each time you do it? How do you keep it fresh, you know, for the audience? This opera is part of what San Diego Opera calls its Detour series, which is meant to take people in a new direction and redefine opera. So how do you see aging magician kind of fitting into that notion of being a detour from conventional opera? Oh, I think I think it definitely is. I work in conventional opera quite a lot, mainly as a designer, actually, set design, costume design. Actually, opera can be problematic because what the traditional audience want to see is very outdated in a way it's usually sexist is often racist and so you're struggling to try and make that relevant but you're kind of fighting against this sacred music that can't be changed the great thing about working with living composers and living writers is you can constantly you can change that and you can write about things that matter to people today yeah there's kind of no rules to its form so you kind of do whatever is going to work you know, at one point, Rindy's riding around the stage on a bicycle, you know, as the chorus sings. So you can have a lot of fun with it. And it really is its own thing, which I imagine that's what the program is hoping for, you know, for new work, new work that's different. Magician is in the title, and there is something very magical about the way this show looks. Describe a little bit of what the production design is like. I think it starts off it starts off kind of looking like a solo show with a lot of backup. You know, it's a man at a table and it's very, it starts very simply. There's a lot of projection, a lot of theater and a lot of opera has projection there. 
I think the projection works particularly well on this. It's a man he's writing on paper, and so there's a lot of paper on the set, and the chorus lift up sheets of paper and use paper at various points, and we project onto that. So the projection is very much kind of living within the piece. And then there is a big, there is a big reveal at the end. We worked with a, an extraordinary man, Mark Stewart, who, who's what he does. He's an inventor of musical instruments, and these musical instruments are often very sculptural. So we kind of make it. We kind of make a musical interpretation, a kind of Coney Island, which is also a giant musical instrument that the entire chorus play, and it's also a little bit like heaven. It's a very hard show to talk about. I realize. <laughs> Um, you kind of just have to come and see it. Well, I'm so glad it's finally going to be coming to San Diego. So thank you very much for talking about Aging Magician. Thank you. It is actually a very hard show to talk about. I, I really love the show. It, it really is a, like a beautiful piece of poetry in a way, but very hard to say what the story is. It's very hard to be totally clear about it. It's very dreamy. <laughs> That was director Julian Crouch speaking with KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando. San Diego Opera's The Aging Magician has only three performances at the Balboa Theater this Friday and Saturday. KPBS On Demand is supported by the National Conflict Resolution Center. Topics like political polarization and hybrid work policies can create workplace conflict. NCRC can help workplace leaders navigate divisive issues with the culture, communication, and conflict certificate. More at ncrconline.com.